0: Let us now return then to Luke's Gospel chapter nineteen. And the focus of our meditation tonight will be found in verses eleven to twenty seven. Eleven to twenty seven, the parable of the the nobleman who went to obtain a kingdom we're carrying on from where we left off last week. Last week, we looked at the time when Jesus entered and passed through Jericho, and he met with the chief tax collector, Zacchaeus. And we rejoiced that here was a a social outcast who was wonderfully converted and changed and brought in to the kingdom of God. And immediately after that, Jesus brings this a parable to bear upon the people there. I don't know if you're interested or following here, but commentators would maintain that the portion of scripture that we have read is really the last part of Luke's gospel. Before this, we have been looking at Jesus making his way to Jerusalem, and it is reputed that in the passage we read, Jesus has actually entered into Jerusalem and he is about obviously to undertake all the work that was foreordained for him before the foundation of the world. And Jerusalem actually is very prominent in the book of Luke. It seems to be focused and dominated by uh, Jerusalem and of course that's not that surprising when you consider what happened at Jerusalem. But one commentator has maintained that Luke mentions Jerusalem 32 times in his uh, gospel, and that compares with 13 times for for Matthew and 11 times for Mark. Well, seeking the Lord's blessing, we would like to meditate profitably upon this portion of Scripture verses 11 to 27. And the title I want to give to the sermon tonight is The Long Haul. The Long Haul. And that's basically taken from verse 11, where we read, And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable, because he was nigh to Jerusalem, And because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. And this parable would rubbish that claim that the the kingdom of God was actually going to appear. Now we know (coughs) that the kingdom of God began. It had begun. But what they expected was that when Jesus would go to Jerusalem, that the kingdom of God, in all its fullness, as they understood it, would suddenly come about when he went into Jerusalem. And he had to tell them, this is not the case. Certainly, the kingdom of God is among them. And the kingdom of God at that stage was the rule of God in the hearts of individuals, and that's where we find ourselves today. This is what the kingdom of God is for us today. If you are a Christian then Christ in some real sense is seated upon the throne of your heart and he is ruling your life and you're in the kingdom of God. But that is the kingdom of God if you like an embryo stage. We're looking for that day when Christ will return in power and in glory, and he will establish fully, completely, comprehensively, the eternal kingdom of God, which we will see with our eyes, and which we will know firsthand. And that's what they thought was going to happen when Christ would enter into Jerusalem. And remember, the disciples and the apostles, they were brought up with this kind of theology, that when the Messiah would come What would happen? He would overthrow their enemies. He would bring about the kingdom of God. The Messiah would reign on earth and it would be a glorious time for Israel. That was not going to happen. That's not it. And Jesus had to tell them here that they must be in for the long haul. So seeking the Lord's blessing, I have three brief things that I wish to highlight from these verses for us this evening. The first thing really we have touched upon, what is it? It is correction. There's no doubt about what this parable is about. Jesus tells us we don't have to seek for an explanation. Jesus tells us even before he spoke the parable what the parable was about because they thought that the kingdom of God Should immediately appear and therefore he's in we might say correction mode and this is something that Jesus had to do quite a lot and one commentator has said and there's a lot of truth in it if you take the New Testament as a whole you can see that much of the New Testament has been written in order to correct the views and the opinions And the doctrines of many in the church. You could think of the time when Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ. And Jesus said, flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but the Father in heaven. And then when Jesus talked about going to Jerusalem to suffer and to die, Peter would have none of it. And what happened? Jesus had to correct his false theology. And this is something we find in, as we go through the New Testament. Is it not true that many of the epistles were written to correct things that were wrong in various congregations? We could think of the first Corinthians, for instance. The many things that the Apostle Paul brought to their attention were, were errors in the congregation. He had to speak, for instance, on 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about the resurrection. Some were denying the resurrection. He had to outline it. And we have that wonderful full description of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You could think of those in Colossae. Some were saying there that, yes, Jesus saves, but you need something else. It's a Jesus plus theology. And what does Paul say there? Ye are complete in Christ. You could think of James. What does James tell them? Faith without works is dead. A mere formal profession of faith without a life that has been transformed will fool no one. There must be works following To give evidence that someone has truly been saved, you will see a changed life. Faith without works is dead. And here the Lord Jesus is correcting their false theology. And you might find that this is something that he does with each and every one of us. How much have we got to unlearn? These disciples had to unlearn much, and Jesus had to correct them. And that's why he gives this parable here. He talks about a nobleman, and he goes to obtain a kingdom. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. This was quite common. We might find this foreign in our culture, but in the Eastern culture, this was quite common. Herod the Great did this when he went to Caesar in order that he might get the authority to have his kingdom. And his son did exactly the same, Archelius. And the people were so incensed about Archelius having a kingdom that they sent a petition that Caesar would not give or grant the authority to Archelaus that he might reign, but he did. And they were cruelly ruled by this ruler. They traveled to Rome in order to get their authority from Caesar to reign. (coughs) And this is what we find here. A certain nobleman. There's no doubt who this nobleman is. It is none other but Christ himself. And when he goes to receive his kingdom. He is talking about going back to heaven. When after the resurrection he was. Raised to life. He ascended up into heaven. And he was exalted and glorified. And received the kingdom. And one day he will return. So the Lord Jesus Christ is correcting their wrong views. And this is something he does with us. We have so so much that we bring when we come to Christ that very often we have to discard it. And what must we do? We must fill our minds with the scriptures and the teaching of the scripture. We must let the Lord Jesus Christ teach us We need to be teachable. We need to be docile. We need to absorb what he says, and undertake, and understand, and realize that we need the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, we acknowledge that on many occasions we're like the disciples. We need to be corrected. And this is humbling. And as we have said on other occasions, It is the most humbling thing in the world to become a Christian because what are you doing? You are ultimately saying that you cannot save yourself and you need someone else and that other person is none other than Christ, that one who humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, and that one who was despised and rejected and forsaken of men and who was mocked at and spat upon. You are to put your faith and hope and trust. Upon one who went to Calvary, who suffered that terrible death, whose head was crowned with a crown of thorns, and whose hands and feet bled. His side was pierced. He was a terrible spectacle on the cross. That's the one you've got to believe in. That's the one who is the Son of God. That's the one who is the only mediator between God and men. That is the Christ. That is the Lamb of God, who taketh away the sins of the world. And however foolish it might seem to the world, and indeed it does seem foolish to the world, the Christian recognizes that it is the power of God unto salvation. And how does he recognize this? Because he has been taught by God, and he has one who has rejected his own wisdom, and is relying upon the wisdom of God. We have to be corrected. We have to recognize there is no other way to be saved. There's no other way to get right with God. God will not provide another sacrifice, another substitute, no. The perfect offering has been given. And God has been satisfied. The second thing, and the most dominant thing we find in this, in this portion of Scripture, is the calling. It's the calling. And what is he saying, primarily in verses 13 to 19, about the calling? He is talking here about the importance of faithfulness in the interim, in the long haul, in between the time of the first coming of Christ and the second coming. He's calling upon his people, the believers, Christians, to be diligent about their callings and to be faithful to what God has called them unto them. This is what we find here. verse 13 he called his 10 servants and delivered them 10 pounds and said unto them occupy till i come who are the servants and before we proceed we would notice that the word here that has been translated servants can easily be translated slaves it's doulos It means slaves and this is what a Christian is he is one who serves who slaves towards the Lord Jesus Christ and he's not ashamed of this this is his calling the Lord Jesus calls ten servants and delivered unto them ten pounds that would be equivalent to three or four months wages he gives them so much money And basically what he says to them is trade. Here's this money. I'm going away for a time. I'm going to be out of the country. I'm going to be out of earshot and eyeshot. I trust you to go and to trade and to do business with this money. And when I come back, we'll see how you get on. So see how faithful you are. And this is telling us the importance of the faithfulness of the Christian. This is his calling. In the day and generation that he finds himself there and we find ourselves here, it's imperative upon us that we are faithful. And the Lord Jesus Christ has given to every single Christian a pound. He's given to every one of us something to trade. No Christian is without this Christ, indeed, is a nobleman, and his servants, or his slaves, the doulos, are Christians. And the citizens, who are the citizens? Well, the citizens are the Jews. First and foremost, when he delivered this parable, it would have been the Jews, those who had rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. But, in our day, the citizens would be unbelievers. So, basically, there are three different persons here we have the the nobleman the Lord Jesus Christ who went to receive a kingdom and we have his servants or slaves and we have the citizens and their cry is we will not have this man to reign over us and there's something then for us to ponder and think about here Jesus is telling them They're in for the long haul. And not only is it going to be a long haul, but they're going to be operating in in a hostile environment. The people will hate the Lord Jesus. It doesn't tell us why they hate him. They simply say, we will not have this man to reign over us. And in that environment, the Christian is to trade The Christian is to be a faithful servant of the Lord Jesus Christ in terrible times over a long period of time. And what do we notice? Well, we notice that he will come back. Verse 15, for instance. And it came to pass, as it will come to pass, We know there may be scoffers, and indeed the Bible tells us there will be scoffers. And the very fact that there is scoffers, that again would confirm to us how true and how accurate the Bible is. In the last days, scoffers will come. And it says here, And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him, to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. And you know what happened. Then came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. Jesus, what does he say? What does the nobleman say? Well, thou good servant. Do you not see here that Jesus rejoices in the faithfulness of his people? Here was a servant, here was a slave who was given one pound. In that long period, in that hostile environment, he goes out and he trades. And what happens? He comes back and now he has 10 pounds and he's able to pass his 10 pounds back on to his master. And Jesus congratulates him. Oh, Christian, is this not something for us to take home with us? Here we are, we serve the Lord Jesus in a hostile environment. Oh, I hope we do serve the Lord in this environment. Because if we do, we can look forward to this glorious reward. We can look forward to this day when the Lord Jesus Christ will delight. Well, thou good servant. Well, thou good servant. This is what he calls us to. This is what's required of every Christian. There is no Christian that can be accepted We're all given this one pound, we're all given this money when we belong to him, when we are his slaves, he gives us this and he tells us to trade. What does it mean? Well, it means that we work out our salvation in fear and trembling, that we grow in grace, that we know more repentance, that we know more of faith. That we hunger and thirst after righteousness, that we know sanctification, and that we do what we can within our limitations in order to proclaim the gospel and to be witnesses for him in our day and generation. That's what's required of the Christian, even in a hostile environment where the citizens cry out, we will not have this man to reign over us. It's a very sobering thought for us. Each Christian is given the same, and they are expected to capitalize on what they have received. We need to ask ourselves, what are we doing? How are we progressing? Are we being faithful? To whom much is given, much is required. Here we are in a land where the worship of God at the moment is free in the sense we are not under persecution. We have so many resources, so many opportunities, we have so much knowledge. At our disposal, our libraries are full. We have scores of Bibles. We are awash with biblical information. Are we capitalizing? This is what Jesus is speaking to us tonight about. Are we living up to the light that we have? To whom much is given, much is required. And when the day of reckoning came, the Lord was delighted with the faithfulness of those who served him. Another came, he gained five pounds. Be thou also over five cities. The doctrine of rewards, friends, is something that the Bible does teach us. Let us be clear upon this that salvation is by grace, through faith and this not of yourselves, it is a gift of God and not of works so that no man may boast. But there is a reward. There's a reward for faithful service. All who are Christ will go to heaven. There's no doubt about that. And they will go because of the grace of God. They haven't earned it in any sense. But some will enjoy heaven more than others. There will be a reward. None will be disappointed. But there will be a reward. According to the faithfulness of each individual. And this is to stir us up. Because we're living in a a hostile world. It's a long haul, it's not easy, it never was, it never was promised to be. The Old Testament believers, they had their difficulties, they had their trials. Do you think that you're going to get to heaven by an easier way? Is it going to be made easier for you? No, of course not. It's the long haul, but there is light at the end of the tunnel. And there is encouragement. And it comes from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That's our calling. To be faithful. To trade. To take what Christ has given to us. To each and every one who confesses the name of the Lord Jesus. There are no exceptions. And to trade. And to make capital. The third thing we would notice is the consequences. And particularly the consequences of those who reject the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what this parable ends with. It's a warning to all. What a sobering destiny awaits those who reject Christ's Kingship. It's awesome. It's terrible. The parable, as we've said earlier, is set in an Eastern context. And if the king had enemies after he took his kingship and he had his rule before him, if he had enemies, it would be normal for him to destroy his enemies we're used to the phrase of, would take no prisoners. Well, that's exactly what would happen in Eastern times. That's what Herod would do, and that's what Archelaus would do. If there were rebels in his kingdom who wouldn't submit to his kingship, he would destroy them and think nothing of it. That's what happened in that day and in that generation. We might say, well, That's not for us, though. That's not for Christ. That's not what's going to happen. Well, is that so? Jesus says there in verse 27, But those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. This is quite harsh, we might say. We might say it's quite harsh, brutal. What are we to make of this grisly sentence? Is it just simply that Jesus was speaking of the times that he was in and what uh, uh, human rulers would do? We must be careful that we do not fall into the trap. It's awesome what he's talking about here. And what he talks about here in pictorial language, we also find in the New Testament. In Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, and in the Thessalonian letters there, the Apostle Paul was correcting some of the views of the people in Thessalonica. The views that they had of the second coming of the Lord Jesus. He had to correct them. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, at verses 8 to 10, he's talking about the time when the Lord Jesus Christ would return. And these verses are very sobering. And what we find here in pictorial language is outlined for us in clear language. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 8, for instance, It talks of Christ in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints. Does that not accord with what we find here at the end of this parable lesson that Jesus relates? But those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. We might like to sanitize these things, but we are careful not to malign the word of God. There is a warning here. The parable depicts the eternal ruin, and the apostle declares exactly the same. The parable and the epistle are in complete agreement. And we have to realize, friends, It's impossible to describe the final judgment of those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ pleasantly and attractively. We're not like undertakers. The preacher is not like the undertaker. What does the undertaker try to do? He tries to glory death. He tries to make it pleasant. He tries to Take people's minds off it and to see the horrors of it well the preacher cannot do that with the Word of God and here we have a terrible warning for those who will reject the kingship of the Lord Jesus and friends I may add he is not just talking here about those who are his enemies He's talking about here, about this other servant, this other professing Christian who we find in this parable. And he's given the one pound, just like all the others. But what does he do with his pound? He hides it. He does nothing with it. He doesn't even put it in the bank. And had he put it in the bank, he would have received interest on it. And he would be able to give something more back to the Lord Jesus, to the nobleman. But here we find this professing Christian who claims to be a servant, who claims to be a a slave of the Lord Jesus. And how does he describe the Lord Jesus? I feared thee. Verse 21, because thou art an austere man, a hard man, and takest up that thou layest not down, and reapest that thou didst not sow. He's got hard views of Christ. And what he's really saying is he's not really a disciple. At all he professes to be a slave he has received the same as everyone else has received but he's not faithful the root of the matter is not in him and it's revealed by his language what Christian in their right mind would say that the Lord Jesus Christ is a hard man Oh, the Lord Jesus Christ is a courageous man he's a bold man he is the perfect man he's a fearless man but he's a compassionate man he's a merciful man he's a gracious man he's a a loving man and he showed that by going to the cross And this poor individual here, and we'll call him poor because of the end that awaits him, this poor individual here knew nothing of the Lord Jesus. He thought he was serving a hard master when he should have realized that if he was truly a Christian, he was serving a gracious Lord. Some commentators would maintain, well, This man was not slain like the enemies. Some would maintain that. We have here in verse 27, But those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. But that doesn't include this man here, who had the one pound and who hid it. And was not a profitable servant and did not please the Lord Jesus but we would disagree why would we disagree we would disagree because of the words of the Lord Jesus himself in verse 22 and he saith unto him that is to this unprofitable servant out of thine own mouth will I judge thee thou wicked servant a wicked servant he was And the righteous judge had pronounced this. This is not my opinion or man's opinion. This is the the opinion of the infallible judge. Thou wicked servant. If you really believed that I was a hard man, you would have put my money to the bank that I might obtain interest or usury on it. Here we have then, friends, the consequences. The consequences of the enemies of Christ who would not have this man to reign over them are clear. They're destroyed. But it's also clear that the one who professed and who was given much and proved to be unprofitable would be treated exactly the same. It is very sobering for us to end this sermon on this note, but that's it, friends. We cannot sanitize the truth. We cannot, we dare not. We don't have that authority. It is intended to be awful. It is intended to scare you. It is intended even to offend you. If in that way it might get your attention. That it might waken you up. That you might realize that Christ's servants, Christ's slaves will be faithful. They will be diligent. Even in the most hostile of environments. By grace they will be enabled to be fruitful and to be profitable servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here, then, friends. What does this parable teach us? Well, Christ teaches his disciples that the period between his first coming and his second coming will be a long haul. A long haul but they will be rewarded according to their faithfulness. And what's true for them is true for the disciples today. During this period of the long haul, when we don't know when he will return, but we know he will return because he has received a kingdom. And one day that kingdom will be revealed in all its glory. Let us be faithful in the long haul.